Welcome to Let's Grab a Cup podcast. This is where we talk about leadership, authenticity, resiliency. We provide a place to hold space for one another. I'm your host, Adam Sturgeon. So why don't you grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever suits you at this moment. Let's dive in. Well, good morning. I am Adam Sturgeon. This is the Let's Grab a Cup podcast. Uh, today, I get to sit down with a, a gentleman named Tony Lopez. He uh, retired as a commander with the Long Beach Police Department after about 29 years of experience. He's an exceptional leader on the department, and he, I know he affected many lives while he was there uh, with, the, with the agency. Uh, Tony grew up in Hawaiian Gardens, and we'll get into that, and I just really appreciate you coming on today, sir. Uh, thank you for having me, Adam. I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak and uh, uh, share my story with you guys. So I know you said uh, you told me you were uh, you're listening to the podcast and we started talking and I like I, I didn't sometimes you don't know who's listening. So it's really cool. To, like when I get a chance to talk to someone who I worked with and listens to the podcast and really says like they're getting something out of it and they see there's benefit to it. And I like that you're able to come on and talk about what you had going on. So I really appreciate you uh, coming today. Yeah, no, and thanks for uh, keeping us entertained with it also. Um, I came across it. I um, was driving down the road one day in uh, North Idaho, and I'm like, hey, I know that guy, and uh, it was long overdue. It's, it's a good uh, – the concept you have is amazing. And, um, again, I wish something like this would have t- taken place a few years back, but uh, it's, a, it's a great thing you're doing, so thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, so uh, let's get started. What's, uh, tell us about how you grew up, where you, where you uh, started, and kind of what you got you into really a career in law enforcement. Okay, so um, I grew up in uh, the smallest city in L.A. County, um, Hawaiian Gardens, California, which is right up against Long Beach, right at the border of the L.A. County, Orange County line. Um, rough neighborhood, one square mile, a uh, uh, lot of um, gangs, uh, generational gangs are from there. And uh, probably, unfortunately, the uh, the thing that we're most significant for is uh, one of the founders of the Mexican Mafia was born and raised in that city. And ever since then, they've sort of had a, I wouldn't say a stranglehold, but a control of the city. So went there, uh, grew up there, born and raised, and um, never wanted to be a police officer. Really? Uh, my goal was to um, be a high school teacher and coach high school football, and that would have been my dream job. Uh, but uh, actually on a bet, I decided to test at the Long Beach Police Department. I didn't know anything about police work. I didn't know any police officers. And I won the bet. I was the first one to get hired. And uh, here we are now. So how does that work? When you, you, who are you betting when you're doing this scenario? So I had two buddies who were um, explorers for the sheriff's department. And uh, they had been explorers for a few years. And we're probably uh, 19 years old. And I was attending a Cerritos Junior College. And uh, we're hanging out one day. We're like, hey, let's bet who can get hired the fastest. So we put money in a tank. And first person who uh, got hired got the money. And then um, I saw the movie Colors, and it kind of blew me away, and I was hooked. And uh, I went for it, and things worked out for me. That's crazy. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Just doing your whole career is on a online on bet. <laughs> pretty much. That's funny. So tell me about, more about the Hawaiian Gardens. I know, like, it, yeah, it's a pretty small city uh, right next to Long Beach. And, um, I mean, we rarely I mean, we rarely venture into Hawaiian Gardens. But as far as, like, what was it like, li- like living there? Yeah, living there, so um, – Mom and dad, it's uh, uh, neither of my parents graduated from high school. They went to about 11th grade. Uh, they both came from big families, had to work to support their families. And my mom was born and raised in Hawaiian Gardens as well. So we go back there to about the 1940s. Oh, wow. My dad grew up in Norwalk. Yeah. And um, they met, got married, um, started a family there. And it was one of those things where, you know, uh, 
it's what it's what they could have afforded at the time. And uh, I thank God that they were extremely strict on us. Um, a lot of gang members around there, like I was saying, but a lot of good people as well. Um, the uh, my my dad was a passively he's a passive disciplinarian, I would say. So he just want, didn't want us to get in trouble. Um, and just going up there, it was what I knew. You know, um, I have to be honest, I never experienced violence there, no shootings, nothing like that. But um, it's what I knew. It was normal. And that's the kind of the life that I knew. And uh, I'm just glad I had the parents to keep us on the straight path. You know, we were heavily involved in sports and school. Parents were always there at meetings, parent-teacher meetings, or athletic events. And they kind of steered me away and kept me free from the gang element there. But uh, yeah, if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably do it again because, uh, again, there's great people there as well. That's great. And I, I think that's like important to say, like, as far as like being involved in sports and, and just uh, being busy all the time, because you always see these kids out on the street and usually that's how you get yourself in trouble, obviously being out, being out and about and really have nothing to do and having that parent involvement is really important. So I'm, I mean, I'm sure you thank your parents all the time, but that was huge for you probably growing up. Yeah, absolutely. It was like so, I said, I wouldn't change it for the world. So what sports did you play? Were you fo- were you playing football? Because you want to be a football coach. I played I played baseball. I played football, and I was one of those. Uh, I was a man child. You know, I had a mustache in the sixth grade, hairy legs. You know, I was taller than everyone. And then after eighth grade, everyone passed me up, and I stood still. But uh, I had a really good time. I played football eight nine years, baseball about eight or nine years, and then uh, after high school, I got into coaching. I coached you sports for fifteen years. That's so. crazy. So you were the kid that every all the parents said like. How old is this kid? You're, exactly. you're that kid. Check his birth certificate. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. absolutely. There's some of those kids out there. Yeah. Who's here like, how old is this kid playing? <laughs> they thought I was driving up to practice or driving up to the games when I was ten years old. You know. That's funny. I like how you said that everybody passed you up. Yes. So I have a question. I know people uh, worked. I don't know if this is when how long this started, but they called you Choopy. Choopy. Where, where did that come from? Okay, so every, there's a bunch of urban legends out there. Yeah, but uh, I want to hear the. Urban, I don't matter. know the urban legends, I was, so I want to hear the. I want to hear all urban legends <laughs> and the real story. There, there's a whole lot of them. <laughs> no, it, it's simple story. We uh, when I was in the academy, um, we went to the sheriff's academy. Long Beach Police Academy at the time was uh, shut down, so they sent us to the sheriff's academy. And a buddy of mine, uh, John Bruce, he later left to become a police officer in Redondo Beach, and he recently retired. We were roommates. We hit it off. He was from Michigan. You know he. Uh, at parent orientation, he was rocking the mullet, you know, and just doing his, his Michigan thing. And for some reason, he thought my name was Chewy, but he couldn't <laughs> pronounce Chewy, so he called me Chupi. And it's not as simple as that, but it sticks because in Spanish, it's kind of a derogatory term right. if you take it that way. And uh, that's how the legend was born of Chupi. Wait, why did he think your name was Chewy? He's from Michigan. He, <laughs> he just didn't he just, know? I don't know. I just, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So, no, I've heard a lot of other stories about how I got named and this and that, but that was, you know, and ever since then, I believe there was an, uh, one of my best friends, Chris Rose, he ran with it. And he's like, yeah, Chupi fits you, so we're going to start calling you Chupi for, from here on out. And uh, what is it, 32 years later, I'm still Chupi. People still call you Chupi, yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> I know, they, they would say your name, they would say Chupi, and I'm like, who's Chupi? Like, I had no idea who they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So you start. So you took the test at nineteen. Is that you said? No, I took the test at twenty. At twenty. At nineteen. That that's when the bet. That's was, when the bet uh, started. Uh, right. So um, it was funny because after that weekend, I wake up in the morning. I'm having coffee with my dad, and uh, I'm working at the time. I'm going to school, and uh, again, I just wanted to be a teacher. 
And my dad was reading the press telegram and the back page, it says Long Beach Police Department hiring. And I'm like, oh, I don't know anything about Long Beach, even though I live right next to it, but uh, I'll give them a shot. And again, I was, it was um, the unknown. I didn't know anything about it. So I just started the process. Um, it was pretty grueling, but, you know, I love the camaraderie of sports and I thought police work would be something similar to that if I could uh, would have imagined back then. And uh, so when I told my friends that I, I, uh, uh, wagered, wagered against that I'm going to test with Long Beach. They're like, oh, no, it's a bad police department. Oh, really? The sheriffs are, the sheriffs are about to take over. And this is back in the early 90s when the vote occurred, Long Beach was saved. But uh, I'm like, I'm going to give it a shot. I kind of want to do my own thing. And I did, and one thing led to another. And uh, December 10th of 91, I uh, was hired and started the academy. Oh, wow. So was that, was that right when the riots were starting or was it right before? Yeah. So um, I graduated high school in 1989. So a year and a half after high school, I was already in the police academy. And um, I was lucky. I have absolutely no life experience. Lived with mom and dad still. Um, had a job, but that's about it. Not a dollar to my name. Um, I graduated uh, May 1st of 92. And that was the second day of the Rodney King riots. And it was on uh, the city was on fire. LA County, the state of California was on fire. Um, and again, so normally when you graduated from the Sheriff's Academy, they gave us two weeks to transition over to Long Beach, kind of learn our policies and whatnot. But um, it would, they were such in dire need of police officers. We graduated at 10 o'clock in the morning and I was in the field at 12 noon. Really? Yeah, we had heard yes. that there were people that were just pulled out of the academy. I don't know if that's kind of maybe that transition to that story or what. Yeah, so my academy class, we uh, we were uh, we graduated that day and we hit the field with a partner. Um, there was also currently a a Long Beach Police Academy that was going on, and they were like uh, they were brought out to kind of just secure the the building and the parking lots and stuff Got like it. that. So, but you were so done. My, uh, but you had finished though. You're you're done with the academy. Yes, yes, I had finished. I had finished a whole two hour. I was a two year a two hour veteran. Um, so I get to briefing and. Uh, I don't know much about Long Beach because again, we got, we're Long Beach hires, but went to the sheriff's department at the time. And uh, I remember getting to 400 West Broadway, our headquarters. And back then we were, um, our briefings were held citywide in one building. And uh, we still have our class A's on because that's all the uniforms we had at the time. And we get there and the squadron probably had about 300 police officers. And I'm thinking this is normal. You know, I don't, again, I don't know anything about police work. Right. And I thank God that they assigned me with uh, an officer, uh, one of my mentors named Steve Filippini, who um, he looked at me and he's like, hey, kid, why are you wearing a class A? We're in the middle of a riot. And I'm like, sir, that's all I got. And he goes, how long have you been on? Two or three months? And I'm like, no, sir, I graduated two hours ago. And he just flipped. But uh, he took a liking to me, thank God, and just kind of showed me the ropes. So he was my first partner for about the first week. Oh, wow. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, if you ever get to you again, I was, I had just turned 21 at the time and just going to calls and seeing what was out there, just the violence around us. I had a come to God moment where I'm like, what did I get myself into? You know, but um, I just followed his lead and uh, it worked out. It's kind of intense. Like you're just going out there after, like you said, just graduating and then jumping in with a partner. He's probably thinking, who's this kid? Like doesn't know anything. And he's going to have to like, take care of you, right? Like, you know how it is, like, new guys, like, take care of you while also trying to do his job. So I'm sure whatever you did that stood out, whether you're handling your business or not, like, it stood out to him. That's why he took a liking to you. I'm sure it was something about the way you handled yourself. It couldn't have just been, like, just by chance. He was, um, he just said, you know, simply put, he goes, do what I do, and that's it. 
you know, I'll do everything else. And again, I was, he was, he was babysitting me, you know, for all yeah. intents and purposes. And uh, yeah, like I said, he, he took a liking to me and he mentored me for the, I don't know, the next 15 years until he, he until he retired, but just the imprint he left on me. And, you know, I'm um, just a seasoned vet who was just uh just an outstanding police officer, outstanding Sergeant. And uh, I'm glad he's my friend. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. So that was the, how long was the, the rides for when you're, when you're out there? They were roughly, if I remember three to five days. And then, I mean, it's still staggered after that a couple of days here and there, but um, it was uh, not nearly as widespread as the most recent ones. Yeah. And uh, I would say about a week long total, but uh, I remember just my mentor telling me, you know, Hey, in your career, you're never going to see riots again. And then, and I'm like, all right. And then it happened. <laughs> so was that, did that feel like deja vu? Like when it happened again, did it, it feel did. like deja vu? It, it, it really, really did. Um, but I think the, uh, the second time around I was in a, uh, I was a commander at the time and it was uh, more widespread and it was more directed. Uh, I think it was a lot more violent than the first go around. It was. Okay. I, I believe so. And a lot longer, you know, they, they sustained those for months. And, yeah. Uh, Rodney King one was pretty much squashed after about a week, two weeks, yeah. you know, total, it was squashed. So uh, tell me about right, like right after the first, like in 92, after the riots kind of died down and you were new, like, what was that like for you? You were on patrol, obviously. And then like, tell me about that time for you. It was um, a lot of learning, you know, again, I uh, don't, didn't have a lot of life experience. You know, you, you learn the hard way because uh, it's trial and error. You know, and you just you don't make the same mistakes twice. And I had really, really good um, training officers who uh, rose to the ranks here at the Long Beach Police Department, and who they they were they were only about a year and a half ahead of me, and they were already my training officers. But they uh, showed us the way, and uh, it, everything was it was a new way of life for me. It was just learning how to do things, how to talk to people. Um, again, I I lacked life experience. Um, I was uh, extremely young, you know, um, but it worked out. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun when you get to know the job, you know, you, you know, enough to be dangerous. That's when you have to kind of be careful. Yeah. So the, after the first year of training throughout the entire city, um, I, some of the downfall that I had or some of the, the, the issues and challenges that I had were I was always working downtown. And then when I got my second year on the job, I was working by myself down in Belmont shore and it's just a different people type of thing. Right. You know? And uh, I had to learn to, know your audience and uh, learn to speak. And, you know, I got a couple of, uh, uh, I complaints just with my mouth and, and, you know, looking back now, it was all me and it was part of the, the, uh, the learning process. And, uh, luckily I, I caught on pretty quick cause I didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. Well, and for those of you listening who are not from long beach or know the area, like Belmont shore is like the nicer as far as like by the beach, um, all the restaurants and like the more expensive housing next to the beach. And then, we do like the, the city is kind of broken up. I mean, there's definitely right right by the right by the ocean is is where you'd say like the the more influential political climate is, and then as you move up is a little more of like the you know the harder area of Long Beach. So I could see how like for you, okay. Tony, like changing the way that you deal with people in different types of areas, I'm sure it affects like how how the outcomes are. So absolutely, absolutely. So you worked about did you work that area for quite a while or just a little bit? Only for about a year, only for about a year. And then I went back downtown and uh, I stayed in patrol for about nine years. And um, at that point I said, Hey, I think, you know, I'm ready to take the next step and I wanted to promote. So I uh, promoted or I, I 
tested for sergeant. I was uh, selected, and uh, I had just under 10 years at that time, and my first job was up in uh, uh, North Long Beach, and it was just a patrol watch. Um, loved doing that. But again, you know, you start to realize that when you're uh, a, a single officer car or, or you have a partner, you know, you're only worried about you two. But when you get to uh, sergeant, now you, you're in charge of seven or eight people, and you just have to – you learn to trust, you know, and that was huge on me. And if I can go back to my mentor, Steve Filippini, he had heard that I was going to promote, so he took me out to lunch. And he said, hey, this is the best advice I can give you, kid. He said, uh, if it's, you know, three in the morning, you want to, you know, bathroom break, you stop at the donut shop. And when you stop there, there's three officers sitting there congregating, having coffee. Acknowledge them, go in, do your business. And when you come out, and if they're gone, you need to soul search. If they're still there, you're doing a good job. And, you know, I held on to that for a long time, and I share that story with a lot of people. But it's about how you treat people. You know, and that leadership, um, I am not an expert by any means, but it's the genuine relationships and caring about people that just goes a long way with everybody. It works both ways. It's a respect issue, and um, it's never failed me. And, you know, one of my hobbies, I love to get to know people. That's just my thing, you know, and um, again, it was just sound advice. That is, that is really great advice because, I mean, we've all seen it. We've all been there. We're the, the supervisor that you or lead or whatever, you know, sergeant, lieutenant, commander, whatever it is that comes in the room and, and you leave. I mean, because you don't want, maybe you feel, you feel uncomfortable or you don't want to be there. It's completely different versus the guy that comes in and you're like, and, and you strike up a conversation with them and you have no issue. You you enjoy that conversation and you learn, and you're always learning from yes. that person and trying to learn more from that person. So yeah, there's definitely a difference for sure. Yeah. It was, uh, like I said, it, it's always worked for me in my career. Um, Did you ever test it? After, Excuse me? Did you ever, like, specifically test it? Like, let me see. I'm going to go in and see if they're still here. Did you ever test it? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like a gut check. Okay, is it going to yeah. work out or not, you know? And I'm glad it worked out for the most part, you know? So, uh, yeah, it works. Was there ever a time yeah. that they were not there? Um, Not that I recall. And I probably did it probably less than three or four times. Yeah. So it wasn't, like, a, a large scale. Right, right, right. But, uh, no, they were there. Yeah. All right. So, I like it. Uh, yeah, so after that, I um, I worked patrol for about a year and a half, and then I became the um, field training coordinator. And uh, like I told you initially, I wanted to be a teacher. I think training and development has always been like it's what my interest or it's what I wanted to do. So I uh, I re- ran the the field training program for three years. So in essence, what happens is when they get off pro- uh, when they graduate from the academy, they get off probation. I'm their main sergeant for the first year. I do the scheduling, staffing. Um, um, any complaints I look into, we do the testing and stuff like that. And it's just not me. I have four sergeants helping me and all the FTOs. So I really, really enjoyed that. Really got to know uh, the next generation of police officers. That was extremely rewarding. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I was uh, selected to work out of the chief's office. I was his administrative sergeant. I did that right. for three years. Yeah. How was that? And that was, what chief was that? That was. I was a little bit resistant to that because I wanted to go back out in the field. My heart's always been in the field. And uh, the chief at the time uh, really helped me, really mentored me, showed me the way as well. And uh, to this day, I joke about him now. I joke with him whenever I see him, which is rare. I'm like, hey, you know, you took away my innocence because you showed me the political side, the administrative side of police work. And uh, you need to learn it. If you want to continue to climb, you need to learn it. But uh, I was still that naive kid a little bit, you know. And uh, you just see what goes through his desk, uh, projects that go out, complaints. You know, you sit and um, shoot and review boards, internal affairs boards. So it 
gave me a, a different aspect to to uh, law enforcement that I, I gravitated to. Who was the chief at the time? It was Chief Anthony Betts. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, he was chief when I came on. Yeah, and just a good guy, uh, extremely knowledgeable. And, um, you know, he, again, he took me everywhere with him so that I could learn, and I, I'm forever grateful for that. How did you end up uh, – I know you moved on to working the counterterrorism unit. How did you transition? Was it right after the, that stint in the chief's office? Yeah. Yeah, so I did three years in his office, and then um, I put him for the uh, – it was called, yeah, counterterrorism intel slash intel. And uh, I didn't know anything about that side of the world, and I just wanted to give it a shot, and I ended up being there for 12 years and absolutely loved it. It's um, it's police work, but it's a different type of police work. You know, a lot of things are informal. There's a lot of networking, a lot of travel involved in that. Um, I was fortunate enough to get selected to an FBI joint terrorism task force, so I was there for about eight years. And uh, this is an offsite location, and it consisted of about 25 people when we were fully staffed, and from different agencies, um, some from the federal level, some from the state level, and we worked together on terrorism-related matters, any threats, you know, we deemed incredible or non-credible here in L.A. County, um, San Diego County. We had a big range, but it was a lot of fun. It was a, a different side, and it's the first time I was actually apart from the police department you know, so to speak. I'd go in there once or twice a week to do paperwork and catch up on things. But uh, besides that, I was at an offsite location and we kind of did our thing there and uh, kind of had free reign. But um, it's, uh, it's um, a great job. Great job. I recommend if anyone could ever do that, it, it'll open your eyes to a different side of the world. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate to do that for so long. What kind of schedule do you have when you're undoing the like counterterrorism stuff when you're out there? Do you, are you working more than like your scheduled hour? Are you, are you stuck Doing because you're doing so much intel, are you stuck doing stuff like after hours a lot, or are you called in? Like, how does that work? Yeah, well, you have to be really flexible because sometimes the people you, you want to interview that work during the day, so you have to go to their house in the evening, and you know you want to go with the partner all the time. And again, our jurisdiction was let me correct myself from St. Louis Obispo down to San Diego. All right, and it was it was a wide area, and they generally gave us stuff that like me personally, they gave me stuff that revolved around Long Beach or neighboring cities. Um, but yeah, so some weeks you worked more, some weeks you just worked 40 hours. But again, it was all dependent on, okay, hey, if I have to interview John Doe, they don't get home till seven at night, then I have to adjust my schedule and go at seven at night. Right. And, you know, we had our uh, take-home vehicles and stuff like that. But it was, uh, as long as you were flexible, uh, they were okay with what you did. That's cool. Yeah, I know Like, that's, uh, I know that a lot of people like to want to get into that uh, specific detail. And I don't know if they like staying in the city, like staying with the, with the department or like you said, going out to JRIC and being part of the, the uh, right. task force. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you're within the police department, we're in this, it's the same detail and you're doing matters. Um, they go hand in hand, but you also do like um, uh, for, uh, I say force protection, but it's a VIP protection. You do a lot of the threats within the city, a lot of, uh, um, bomb threats. We want to make sure there's no nexus to terrorism and we could, you know, let everyone know, Hey, it's not related to this. It's related to something else. So a lot of work, a lot of in-depth work, a lot of behind the scenes and, and uh, work that goes on there. And uh, a lot of it's a lot of surveillances and stuff like that, but it's a, uh, it's fun. It's challenging because it's a small unit. And again, I think why I liked it so much was that team concept. There's only about 10 of us and we have to get along. We have to, you know, work together. We're going to be put in some spots where we need to trust each other. So it was, uh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Were there any incidents that, uh, or like, I guess, deals that happened that you, 
I guess prevented. If you would have, if you wouldn't have been there, that you would, it would have caused devastation, or they had a goal, and then you guys, you guys brought that to you know forefront before it happened. You know, a lot of times you don't know that for the simple fact that you're going to do something to discourage that from happening. It'll take a step before it happens. Um, for instance, uh, the LA there was an LAX shooting. Uh, I want I don't even know what year. It might be ten years ago. It was an active shooter in there, and. Um, so we, my team would roll out, my team that was apart from the police department, the, the task force, we'd roll out, we'd do all the background checks on people. Um, and then we'd, get, we'd, we'd do all the legwork and then give it to the FBI investigators to do stuff like that. Um, there was one, uh, I want to say more recent, and I believe I was out of the detail then, where there was, the, I don't know the ins and outs, but uh, from what I do remember, um, a guy from the Valley was coming down to Long Beach and had planned to... Um, place bombs all over uh, Ocean Boulevard, uh, one of the parks there, Bixby Park. That's right. I, yeah, do, that remember, was, I do remember that, that story, yeah. Because, yeah, so it, it's a lot of it's just that type of work, um, and it's just tracking down people who, you know, who we think are bad, people who were, you know, 10, 15 years ago when the FBI had their, I believe they still have it, the uh, FBI watch list. If they were like in our areas, we'd, you know, go and we'd look at them, make sure they were okay, make sure they weren't causing any problems without them knowing. So it was a lot of secretive work, but it was, um, it was, it was rewarding. But like I said, sometimes we, we stop stuff before they possibly could happen. Didn't mean it was going to happen, but we were just there, you know, to, we had the intel to, to try to thwart it. Yeah. Was there any any time when you were on this task force because you had probably I'm guessing little supervision being away from the department and stuff like that and being on your own uh, where you felt like there was like I don't know where a conflict of interest ever came up where you're like hey no like this is not this is not like or it was hard something that was harder to deal with during that time no you know I I had thought about that one before I went over there and um, there wasn't too much of that there there really wasn't. Um, the department does a really good job of shielding you from anything that might be a conflict of interest, you know, but, uh, cause you, they still have the other detectives that are in the office within the department to handle certain things. So, um, no, I, I it actually worked smoother than I thought it would be. All right. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. I know sometimes agencies working together can cause some kind of conflict. So I don't, you know, as far as like not having the same policies and procedures, you know, sometimes there's right. issues there. So I didn't know if that ever came up. No, no, it, it um, it didn't. We, uh, cause on the detail when I was there, the, the local agencies were um, Santa Monica Police, um, LAPD, the Sheriff's Department, uh, a few others I don't remember. And then you had a lot of federal ones. So uh, we all, we meshed. We, we made sure that things were going to be done legitimately because if we have to take someone to court, things need to be done the right way. Yeah. but uh, So then and you moved on. I said 12 years. That's a, that's a long time in that detail. Yeah. Uh, I just... I fell in love with it. Um, I did that. And I had probably about seven years into it, I wanted to test for uh, for lieutenant. So I, I took the test. My heart wasn't in it. Um, I studied, but I failed the written. And it was kind of like a ego check, you know. Hey, no one likes to fail. But um, it wasn't the end of the world. And I just I regrouped. And I waited about another five or six years. And uh, right when I thought my family was in a good place, our youngest was at a school, um, I wanted to promote and it, I was toward the back end of my career. Now I had probably uh, 25, 26 years on. So I took the Lieutenant's exam. I was fortunate enough to pass this time. I got promoted and um, my first assignment, I was the last person taken in the first group. So I didn't have any snorty. So I go from having a boatload of snorty as a Sergeant 
to absolutely zero as a lieutenant. Right. So I ended up on graveyard. And uh, I hadn't worked the field in 17 years. <laughs> um, and when I went back, faces were new. I didn't know people. Um, quite frankly, I was lost. <laughs> we had a training program for about a month, and then you kind of go on your own. And uh, I was excited, though. You know, I just, again, my heart was always back on the streets. So I, I promoted in uh, 18 and uh, had a really good time, smooth transition. I didn't know anybody. So what I did was uh, on graveyard, you have more flexibility because it's not as busy. And uh, I got all my sergeants uh, citywide and we would go and have coffee for 30 minutes right out of the barn. And I just to get to know them and introduce myself. Um, it worked out really good. I wanted to see what their strengths and weaknesses are, what my expectations of them were. And uh, it worked out really, really good. Got a good group of leaders out there, good group of leaders. So shortly thereafter, um, one of my first shifts by myself, uh, it's three in the morning, four in the morning, and uh, there's a structure fire. And as I'm headed back to the station, I'm like, I better head that way because it's a big complex with the elderly people living there. And as I drove up, shots were being fired. And it was um, the Captain Rosa incident. He was a, uh, God bless his heart. Yeah. He, uh, so the, um, the whole city went haywire. Um, do you want to go, do you want to explain? Cause not, not a lot of people know what sure, that is. Sure. Sure. So as I pull up, shots are being fired and the firemen, fire department's already there. There's a couple engines there. They have a command post because they're there on a structure fire. Um, we're just there initially to direct traffic. And that, that's when the shots start ringing out and our officers immediately take action. Uh, two firefighters were, were uh, wounded by gunfire. Um, Captain Rosa ultimately lost his life. And it was probably the biggest ordeal that I had ever been at where I was in charge. Because there, there was no other higher ranking officer, no other lieutenants to help me. And uh, those sergeants that we met with, I depended on them. I called them over and we gave them our assignments. And uh, again, uh, you and I were talking some time ago about autonomy, you know, and yeah. I trusted them and I allowed them to make their decisions. I told them what our ultimate goal was. And these officers and sergeants were absolutely heroic that night. And it kind of uh, changed my outlook on things. You know, I'm an older guy. I'm, you know, at the back end of my career and you see the hurt that the city is suffering, the fire department, obviously the police officers. And uh, sudden, I had a moment where I said, I want to do more. I can do more. You know, and I was the, uh, again, I was the older one. And I think I go, you know, with hopefully I have a skill set that goes and I can help people. And I wanted more of a, a influence on the police department, if that, if that makes sense. Because I saw how much, how hard they worked, how heroic they were. And man, who doesn't want to lead them? You know, and uh, that was a, that was a career changing, life changing event to me. It truly, truly was, as it was for the officers and the fire department as well. Yeah, I can imagine how chaotic it would have been out there and trying to figure out what's going on. Because I know there was a lot of confusion of what was what was happening. And I wasn't there. I know it happened overnight. But um, just the confusion that would happen when you're out there trying to control the scene. So, Yeah, it, it's one of those where, you know, you know right away that you're in over your head. So right. let's use that team mentality to sit there. Let's give away a sign. And, and I'm telling you, these, the sergeants were the Long Beach Police Department. Uh, they have some great leaders. All they have to do is utilize them because these – People were uh, phenomenal that day, and the officers were even more heroic. And, you know, we're talking about a scene where I believe we had 48 officers on duty that night. 45 were on the call. About 40 were in the building. Um, there's five or six different crime scenes. Uh, it was, uh, you know, that when um, 
nightmare scenario they give you when you promote. Yeah. It was this one on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but, but we, uh, we did it, you know, and, um, I remember coming home at about three o'clock that afternoon and just having my moment to sit there and decompress. And, uh, I turned the news on or I TV on <laughs> that's all over the news, you know? So, uh, I remember my wife telling me, you know, you have to, you have to get to bed. You have to, you're going to work tonight. You got to get to bed. I go to bed about four. I wake up about four twenty because you know, when your brain's on overdrive and you're, I have to prepare, you know, staffing for that night and this and that. And the whole police department as a whole just stepped up, um, Nobody called in sick that next night. It was just phenomenal. And it's one of those where, man, this generation of police officers is to be commended, you know, like never before. Because it's amazing people, amazing uh, empathy. They're just they're awesome. They're, 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 the Long Beach Police Department, the, the leaders that they have there, they're in a good place. You know, what's funny is like we always talk about like the the new guys like, oh, they have it so easy or they're this or that. You know, when you're on when you're when we're training, I'm sure when you were training, they're like, oh, look at these guys. They don't know what they're doing. It's always like the next people don't they didn't have it as hard or they're not going to know as much or whatever it is. But like you said, as soon as you something happens and these people are put in this position to step up, you see it all over the place. Like they step up, they step into that role. They take care. They take action. And like you said, I think it's utilizing and trusting that your people are going to do their job and do it well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, t- I took advantage of the moment when uh, they had me debrief it at management training day. And as I probably spoke for about two hours and I kept throwing out compliments to the police officers and the sergeants who were there. And you can see the command staff, their eyes were kind of open and they were like, what was the biggest issue you had? I go, the biggest issue I had was realizing that this is a huge deal. All of us are going to need to pull together and once you give the sergeants the assignments, I go, I allowed them to make their own decisions and check in with me every so often. And uh, it worked. I go, you have to trust our people. You have to trust them. Incident command system, it works. It works. Um, I believe, and this is not a knock on anybody because it's not, it's not the vast majority, but some people are afraid to trust their supervisors. And you have to. That's why they're promoted. That's why you develop them. If you don't trust them, you better develop them. Right. And uh, um, I was always under the belief that you uh, – you trust them until they give you a reason not to. And when they do, then you just, if it's a training issue, you train them. And uh, it's okay to make mistakes. If you're making decisions, you're moving forward. Um, you're in a good place. So were you running that whole scene by yourself the whole time? Did you ever get uh, assistance from someone that was like higher up or ranking? or did they? Just- I ran it for about the first two hours. And it was weird because we were in transition because it happened, I believe, a little after four in the morning. Our next watch came on at seven. So um, once the scene was, it took about an hour to kind of figure out everything we had, SWAT was uh, responding, and then the day shift started to come out. So about three hours into it, I started to get relieved, and then we had the duty chief who helped tremendously with notifications so that I could focus on the the incident at hand. Yeah. How was it working with the fire department, like having that, um, was there like good communication? Was it difficult? Was there issues? Initially there wasn't, you know, and it was chaotic and, and it's no one's fault. Um, you know, when they get there, they, uh, they set a command post and we have different um, goals. You know, they're there to put the fires out to, to assist people with who need medical aid. We're there to put people in jail and force laws. So their command post was directly in front of that location. They had no idea what was going to, you know, right. Come up the incident. And, excuse me, uh, the police department, we usually generally go a block down a block over. So I wanted them at, uh, not in front anymore, but they had three big engines. They're like, we can't leave because all of our engines are set up and there's still some uh, gasoline smell and there's still smoke. And 
So I got a couple of police officers to go and be there for security team. And then when they gave a, they gave me a battalion chief to come to my command post. And that's when it started to click. We started yeah. to share information and it went really, really well. What was hard was that the, uh, uh, the battalion chief, his best friend was the, was captain Rosa. Oh, wow. And so he, um, you talk about the ultimate professional, this, fire uh, battalion chief was the ultimate professional and uh, held it together, but you could see the pain and it's, you know, it's, um, it was difficult. It was difficult. And that's why I say the city, the whole city heard over it, you know, yeah. and uh, it was, um, it was trying on a lot of different levels. And they said that was a big, that, that incident itself was like kind of a big turning point for you as far as like what you wanted to do with your, with your. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I, about two, about a week and a half prior to that, we had another management training day, and uh, we're, we didn't know what to expect. So we get there, and it's all of the uh, command staff in the police department. And again, I'm the lieutenant with no seniority, right? So after lunch, they have a um, a scenario, and they're like, "Well, who's going to run it?" And everyone looks at me because I'm <laughs> I'm the new guy. So I'm like, "All right, I'll run it." And I kind of got a little uh, nervous because the chief was there, the assistant chief, the deputy, everyone was there, and I got to be up front. I sucked. Uh, if there was a grade uh, lower than F, then I would have got that. Really? And it, um, and I know the incident command system. I just, I, I choked that. That's the bottom line. I choked. What upset me was some people wanted to help me. Other people didn't want to help me. And that kind of rubbed you the wrong way, but you know, it is what it is. And uh, I remember after that day, I went home and I studied the incident command system relentlessly until I mastered it in my own head for about a week and a half, two weeks. And then that's when the incident with Captain Rosa happened. And wow. I'm a spiritual person, but I think I was put in that place for, for, for a reason. You know, I wanted, I had to fail in order to succeed. And uh, I'm just glad I had good leaders around me and uh, to help me, you know, make it happen. So uh, that was a moment. And I remember uh, about a month later, I told my wife, I go, you know, I want to, I want to do more, you know, again, the uh, our kids are in college now. They're all adults, and they're out of the house. And uh, I love the city. I love this police department. I love these people that are uh, I've met recently, and I want to. I think I could do more. And she, was, she goes, you know, you, you know, if you're going to do it, do it, commit to it, and promote. You know, and so I tested for a commander within about a year and a half, and. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get selected for that too. And, you know, you hear a lot of stories and I tell you, you know, like my heart was always with the police, with always in the streets. Um, I thought I was a pretty good police officer, but I really enjoyed being a commander more because you could help people more so than just handling a call because coming back to your show, it, it, it's a wellness thing, yeah. you know, that I think we ignored for a long time. And as a commander, um, not just me, everyone <laughs> during that time, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, trials, a lot of challenges to society. You know, um, I'm with everyone else. Law enforcement is a ever-evolving professional uh, uh, occupation, and we always have to learn how to get better. And as a commander, I was able to have more overreach with, with my division, and uh, all of us needed some help during that time. You know, uh, the last year was – Yeah, what year did you promote? It was awful. I promoted in uh, 19. So like right before, right in, before COVID happened. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I got assigned to my own patrol division. So I was pretty excited about that. And uh, again, you know, the first month was a piece of cake. It was quiet. Uh, I'm like, hey, I can do this. I think I could do a pretty good job here. And a lot of it was just building commodity with, with my division. Uh, I 
would always have this open door policy where, uh, again, I want to get to meet people. I used to call people in just to interview them, just so I know who they are. And are you married? Do you have kids? You know, and it wasn't really about business. My best times as a commander was my door being open and four or five officers being in there and us just BSing and just laughing, you know, because yeah. they need that. Yeah, I, need that, you know? I appreciate you doing that because I think there's a lot of people who say, oh, I have an open door policy. Oh, I have an open door policy. And then when you go in there, they're like, oh, you need to go through your supervisor. Like you don't, you know, like it's like you need to go through your chain of command right. versus actually having, when you say open right. door policy, it should, you should be able to have those conversations where it's just about life and checking in with people and seeing how they're doing because then they're more willing to come to you when there's an issue. You know, they're not going to come to you if they don't trust you. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. And, uh, you know, I, I told my sergeants, you know, too, is, you know, when you see officers in my office, we're not talking about personnel issues because I'm not going to cut your legs off. This right. is just uh, men and women sitting here talking. And my secretary would always give me a hard time. She goes, it's like a party in here all the time. But, you know, that's what I was looking for. I wanted, I like that informality. You know, we're formal enough uh, here on the station. We can be ourselves. Right. You know? I really like that. Um, my first obstacle or I wouldn't say obstacle, but challenge as a, uh, as a commander came with, uh, there was an active shooter in, in our part of the city and, uh, two of my officers, uh, responded to it. And, uh, one of them exchanged gunfire with the guy, uh, the guy had a shotgun. He had already shot two people and his partner who was responding to assist started taking rounds and had no choice, but, to run the suspect over, um, kill the suspect. And, we had to review the body cams and this is probably a little before midnight. And these officers, again, did, did a heroic job. Uh, they maintained the scene. They did everything. One of the officers was transported to the hospital. And when I finally got to him, you know, his first thing to me was with watery eyes, are the victims going to live? The ordeal that he just went to and you see the empathy. And this is what I always wanted to push out to the public. Look who you have protecting you. You have some solid, solid people. Right. And, uh, and they both had a hard time, but you know, they're both, some of the best police officers we had. And, uh, you know, we just, you keep an eye on them, you take care of them, you, you know, you, uh, and you don't want to, as a commander, you don't want to be, uh, overburdening. You don't want to pressure them. You just let it be, but, uh, say, Hey, I'm here for you. You know? And uh, again, these were high producing police officers who did a heroic job. Um, this is a long ordeal. And then, uh, within the same week, I believe, uh, I get a call at about midnight from the duty chief and said, Hey, um, we believe one of your officers committed suicide. We're, they're looking for his body. It's outside the city. And again, it's that big old gulp you get in your throat. You wake up, you know, and uh, they call me. They found him. So we have to start making notifications. And uh, the chief at the time, Chief Luna and, and uh, Assistant Chief Hebish at the time, we all met. And we start. you start making the announcements to, to everybody. And you see the face, you know. And, uh, yeah, I hurt, too. The guy was a great guy. No one saw it coming. Um, and it just it shocks you to your core. You know, because again, I love these people. I genuinely—they're not a name. They're—they're—they're they're my friends, and uh, you see the hurt that the whole watch had, and you know, you start worrying. Like I was telling you, when you get promoted to sergeant, you know, you oversee seven or eight people now. Now you oversee about a hundred people. You know, so it's um, and those hundred people have lives. They have stories too, and you would just—you got to do whatever you can do to be genuine and let them know I'm here for you. I want to help you. If you need help, please come to me. We'll find you resources. And uh, the department, I think now I believe that they're going in that direction as they should be. But it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, though, you walk out, you're proud of your people, and you just care for them. And it's, uh, I think if I had any issue of uh, being a supervisor, I don't want to say I overcared because you don't overcare, but you uh, you hold a lot of that in because you want to be strong for them. It's hard. 
Yeah. Um, I thank God though that I get to go home and I have a beautiful wife who's real supportive, real honest, and we get to vent on each other. So it's a uh, always in a good place at the time. I think there's always an interesting because that has happened now a few times in our career where you know people commit suicide and you always wonder like well they if they would have reached out to you or reached out to me like I would have spent as long as they needed like talking to them right like anything they needed yeah, absolutely and there's always a question like okay well, what's what's in between and that's kind of like why we're doing this like what's in between I need help and I'm I'm fine everything is good. Right. And then no one, there's like this gray area where people are like, well, if I ask, if I go and like talk to somebody, that means that I need help. But they're really, that's really not. There's also this idea of like, we don't do enough to maintain ourselves and maintain each other as far as like taking care of ourselves. Um, like, I don't, I'm a big proponent of like mentally, as far as like continually maintain that, just like your body, like mentally, you should be taking care of that as well. Whether it's having a confidant, someone to talk to, having someone to like work things out with. But I don't know. If there's anything that we can do, I'm still trying to figure this out for the, even for the departments. Like what can, what can they do besides saying, Hey, there's a therapist you can go talk to. I mean, there's peer support, but Sam it's very similar. Like people go, well, I don't want to just talk to some random person. I don't know that works peer support. You know, who, how can you, how can we emphasize that trusting each other to like really open up and have those conversations? Yeah. You know, that, that's a, um, I don't have the perfect answer for you. I don't have an answer for you, but I agree with you. It's, um, Police officers, just in general, they're they're, they're tough to crack, you know. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's gotten better when you, just when people will speak openly to each other, like in a small setting. I think that helps because when I came on, that, that never happened. Um, I hope that somebody can find that that conduit to do that because, uh, again, life's tough, you know. And what we see out there and in our personal lives and whatnot, we need some type of support. We really do. Um, I think strides are being making. Uh, now to, to address that but um man if i had the answer to that i'd spit it out right now because, yeah, no. uh, we need it. it's good that you're in a place where you had the ability to go home and decompress and talk to your wife and like really like really probably let it out whatever you need to do to deal with the issues that you're having at work because there's so that's so much to happen especially in like just a short amount of time and to to manage and deal with and you know worry about because you're still dealing with the incident with the officers who they themselves like? Let's be honest. This is not. This is LA County. People, when you get into a deadly force situation, they're worried about their livelihood. They're worried about their jobs. So you're, they're dealing with that. That's a stressful situation. And then having to deal with the suicide, as far as like uh, that family that's going through that trauma, and then all the guys at work, you know, losing losing a friend, you know, losing someone they worked with. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's um. I wish I had the uh, the perfect answer for that, but it's just uh, it, it's tough to do. It really is, and that's again like I I cannot compliment or talk more about the officers who worked for me. They're, they're good. They're just plain and simple. They're good, you know. And I just wish again the public would open their eyes, and, and a large part of the public does that they see that the goodness of it. But um, they're real people, real men and women. They have real lives, real families. They have hard days and, and they have good days, you know, and, and, but when they put that uniform on, they, they bust their ass to do the right thing, you know, Absolutely. in large. And um, again, you know, this is a, uh, uh, ever changing job. We always have to look at ways to get better, to, to make things easier that, you know, to do the right thing. But um, at the end of the day, you know, they need a mechanism to release, you know, to, to talk to somebody, to uh, go and vent, to go and work out just something, you know, and uh, I just, again, we're, we're making strides, this show is, I think, is a tremendous help, and hopefully, we just keep on improving. 
Absolutely. So then you're, uh, this is, in, what time? This is about uh, February? It's about February. And then in March, COVID hits. And uh, they tell me that, hey, we're going to open up the um, Department Operations Center, which is, you know, the Department Operations Center within the department, it's just when you use a lot of resources and you, you need to have some contingency plans coming up. So they said, hey, we're going to put you in charge of it. So I said, okay. So um, I opened up one out of our station and they let me select 10 people to come and work. And a lot of these people, a few of them I didn't know, other ones I didn't know. And uh, we were responsible for tracking, you know, COVID, if it hits the department, how many people have COVID at the time, um, different um, staffing schedules in case we have to go on a tactical alert because we're short on bodies because of COVID. Um, we're, or, you know, what an educational piece to it. We have to work with the health department. It was pretty much a 24 hour job for two, three months. And uh, I remember again, having several you know, after hour uh, conversations with you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we, in essence had to, uh, to do a deployment over a weekend. A deployment generally takes about two months. We had to do it over two days. And the workers I had, again, I gave them uh, uh, our goals. I gave them our assignments and I let them do it. And the best thing I did was stay out of their way because again, they're good at what they do. They did a great job and we were locked on. So uh, everyone was getting tired. You know, we're just, the patrol officers getting tired, you know, we're burning the candle at both ends. And then uh, lo and behold, uh, things go sideways in Minnesota and, we're looking at riots now. So the command staff said, Hey, since the DOC is already up for uh, the DOC is the department operations center, since it's already up for COVID, let's transition that into the riots. What are we going to do? So again, we work in 24 hours, a lot of times, and, or the DOC was up for 24 hours and uh, we were putting a lot of hours in and uh, just getting the department ready for as far as equipment, where we're going to get equipment from uh, mutual aid. It's a lot of work. It's not just, Hey, make a phone call and everything happens. You right. know, it's a lot of work. And we did that. And uh, we maintained that posture for about another three or four months after that, because of all the rights and protests. And um, that was the time where it was, uh, it was challenging because I'm still the commander of a division. I'm, I have help running it now, but uh, you're looking at this and now you're in charge of, not, I wouldn't say in charge, but now you're trying to manage the entire department. And uh, it's, we had our challenges, you know, um, upset a lot of police officers because sometimes you have to shift their schedule around. You know, what's the saying? What are the two things cops hate, right? Change in the way things are. Yeah. And uh, so we try to, we try to massage it as best we could, but you're not going to make everyone happy. But I would always preach, Hey, let's, this is the greater, let's do it for the greater good. Okay. Look at the, the ultimate goal that we, we need each other right now. And quite frankly, a lot of police officers would come in and they'd be pissed off and upset and disgruntled because of what they're seeing on the news and what, you know, the backlash that we're getting. Um, and that sucks. I'm telling you right now, it sucks. You know, you're a, uh, you know how good your people are. You know how hard they work. You know how much they care about people and you have, what seemed like all of society coming down on the law enforcement profession. Right. And I think it was uncalled for. Um, I don't condone what happened in Minnesota, but again, we're in Long Beach and, you know, throughout the country, 99% of police officers are outstanding. Um, and it was just everywhere we went, you know, we were, we were uh, exposed to negativity in somehow in some way. This is after we're working 12 hours and whatnot. Uh, and, uh, you know, you get people uh, getting up in their faces, spitting on them, police officers. And it was just a hard time, a hard time. And, uh, yeah, so even for a moment there, I, I 
took a step back and I started to lose a little faith in humanity. Just where are our protectors? Where, you know, and they were nowhere to be found. And it took a toll on me. But again, when you go to work, you have to put a happy face on, you're professional and you, you do your job. Right. But uh, I seen the pain in the police officers' faces, you know, the loneliness and uh, I couldn't do anything for them. And that really, really, it, it, it burned me. It burned me. So what did you do to manage that? What was your, if you're sitting putting a happy face on at work, what were you doing for yourself? That's a good question. I, I would try to stay as busy as I can. I'd sleep as much as I possibly can because I was probably sleeping four to five hours a night then. And uh, even when you're sleeping, you're getting calls, right? Uh, people want updates on things. And again, uh, my my backbone is my wife. You know, she's my bodyguard. She's my protector. She's my therapist. And uh, um, she's a, a nurse. And uh, she was a nurse for 21 years, a NICU nurse. But she experienced a lot of, you know, bad things. You know, she had lost some patients. Um, she was a manager at uh, Long Beach Memorial Hospital when they had a, an active shooter. One of the, she knew all the parties involved. Uh, they brushed up against her the day of the shooting. Um, the shooter did? Or the, the yeah, the shooter did. Yeah. And uh, um, she, she's a strong person. And she was my conduit to just, I need to talk. And she would sit there for hours on there and just let me talk if I wanted to. And uh, so she helped me through it. And then my good friends, you know, good family. My kids are awesome. They would always come check up on me, make sure I'm okay and stuff like that. It's kind of weird because, you know, you care about your kids all your life, but now they're coming back. Take I mean, you did a good job, I think, you know, but uh, yeah. So they would come and they would check up on me. They'd make sure the wife was okay, that we were safe and stuff like that. So all that, that strong family support really, really helped. So you're saying it was taking a toll, like with all the officers coming in. I know it was stressful because officers, like you said, like, they understand they have a duty to do, like to, to take care of the city. And it takes, obviously, adjusting schedules or changing schedules. But when it comes down to like, oh, their family wants them home, right? And they don't want to be, they don't want their family gone for every single 12, you know, five, seven days in a row, whatever it is, 12 yeah. hour days. Um, and then adjusting it the next week and then adjusting it again and switching this and doing this and all these back and forth. And I could see them getting burnt out as well. So, yeah. like, dealing with that. Uh, do you feel like even in your position that the, the management and I'm not like to say anything bad about the management, but like, did they, did you feel like, or they had the tools to help you, you know, in your, in what you were dealing with, because you had all these people that are kind of relying on you, but do, did you have people that you could rely on in the department that you knew that they had the tools to help you? Or was it kind of like, everyone's just trying to figure it out. Everyone's kind of trying to figure it out. I had one or two uh, good friends who, who, who were, uh, were, higher than me rank wise and you know um i'll, hit, I'll say his name you know the, the current chief now uh chief Hibish, he called me and said hey tony you good and that meant a lot you know he called me check you know and uh i truly believe he was being genuine and he's like hey whatever you need you let me know if you need time off you let me know um so he was always there checking on me so i have to say that yeah if, i think if i would have reached out to him or told him hey you know i could use some help he probably would have afforded that to me did you – I guess it's kind of interesting because do you feel like as a police officer that you would have done that? I mean, I'm guessing you did. Like, did you ever reach out to him and say you needed help? I did not. Do you under, Do you ever feel like you – I'm just curious, like, in this situation. So because you're like, hey, I'm in charge. Like, I got to handle it. Like, going back to the same mindset of, like, I got to know, you know, all the ICS stuff to be do it well. And now you're in this scenario where you're in charge to be like, hey, I need time off. Do you, I don't feel, I don't know if it's hard for me to see people doing that. Um, yeah, no, you, you're right. I, and I, um, looking back, I mean, I, 
I wouldn't have. I would have done the same exact thing. I would have just internalized it, handled it, and moved on. Right. You know, I, I, it just the police department is, regardless of what police department you're from, you know, we're all team players, and you all have a job to do. And um, I just want to do my job to the best of my ability. That's all I want to do. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's going to bite you in the ass, though. You know. Um, so we go later on toward the year, and my wife, the nurse, says, "Hey, we need to have a talk." So I'm like, "Oh no, what did I do?" <laughs> So we sit down, we're talking, and she's like, hey, she goes, telling you this because I love you. She goes, you're, you've missed your physical. We have to schedule that. She goes, you look tired. You look five years older. You've gained weight. I'm worried about you. You won't let me take your blood pressure. And she said, so I made an appointment with you next week, and this is what he goes, I'm going to go to make sure you go. Wow. And we went, and I had been on blood pressure medication, but a very, very minimal amount, and my doctor went and said, Hey, um, this is the worst physical you've had in about 10 years. And she goes, your, your blood pressure is through the roof. Your cholesterol's up. Um, you need to start making some changes to your life. And she goes, or, you know, she goes, you can keep on at this level and it's not going to progress. And it's not going to progress nicely for you. Right. And that was kind of a, the blow to the stomach. So we get in the car and we have a long talk and it was probably, early November of 20. And I had literally, and not just when I say I, it's not just me. It's a lot of the, all the command staff and the officers, everyone was working double time, triple time. We were doing what we had to do. And uh, my goal was to leave in uh, December of 21 to give me a full 30 years. But uh, I was tired. I couldn't sleep. I was getting migraines and, uh, we had that hard discussion, you know, being a police officer, it's the real, it's the only full-time job I've ever had in my life. I loved it. Um, it was just, I love being a police officer and I love being a police officer for the department I work for, but we made the hard decision, you know, that it's for my safety, for my health and for just my family. It's best if we retire. And it, I slept on it for about a week. And then I finally told my bosses, Hey, for health, I have to leave. It's just, I knew I was in a bad place. You know, um, yeah. I was telling you, I was telling you last week too, during this time when I felt my body biologically just breaking down and, uh, um, I was getting something called trigger finger where your fingers lock in place that I was hiding from people. So probably four times during that year, I had to go and get a series of shots to release my fingers. Really? Um, it's stress. It's stress. The doctor said it's 100% stress related. So, after I made the decision and the hard part wasn't making the decision. The hard part was I didn't want the officers to think I'm leaving them. You know, I wanted to be here for them, but it's just, I couldn't carry forward anymore. Right. You know, I needed, I needed a really, really, really long break. And uh, so we made the decision and it was hard to tell people, but it was uh, looking back now, it's been a year and uh, I don't regret it. I'm in a better place now. Health wise, I'm a lot better. Um, the stress is gone, but I miss, I miss the, uh, Officers in my office BSing with me, yeah, joking. I miss that. The I don't miss the media. Correct. I, I I don't miss the uh, the politics. I don't miss um, the phone calls at night. So it's a. Uh, I do it all over again, but it was just you know my message to people who are you know toward the end of the career, take care of yourself, and you know well I, I mean that for everybody, but even toward the end you know don't don't let the a job get the better of you because I always told myself that'll never happen to me. I'm too tough, and guess what? Life catches up and life's going to win. Yeah. I just want to take a moment to commend your wife here because the fact that she, A, obviously she loves you so much and she, 
she's showing that by she can recognize when things are changing and things aren't right and then she you know and does whatever she can to take care of you which is like going to the doctor with you like hey we're doing this and then to have those really hard conversations with you and so it's a very commendable thing that she's doing to take care of you because if she if she wasn't paying attention or she wasn't you know didn't care then you who knows where you'd be right now Right. No, no, I agree. And I'm thankful for her every day. And, you know, the biggest un- unsung heroes in this that never get the praise that they deserve is the significant other of a police officer. Yeah. Because, um, you know, they have to take the kids to practice. They have to uh, go to the PTA meetings. They have to go to the uh, shopping, you know, when we're at work. And uh, you, need a, you need strong support at home. And, and you know, a lot of these uh, significant others, they're they're the backbone of the police department, even though they don't wear the uniform of the backbone because they got to be strong for the family. Yeah. And uh, that's something I don't overlook, never have. Absolutely. And on top of that, I mean, she has her own dramatic situations and like she's going through stuff too. So there's different things that you guys are dealing with as a family. That's not, just, you know, it's not just one sided. It's a lot of back and forth that you guys have to, you have to overcome. Right. Did you want to talk right. more about yeah. what happened with that uh, incident with your wife or? Sure. Sure. We could talk. So, um, I was um, in my uh, I was at the offsite location with the um, my task force, and in the room we were at, it's called a skiff. We're not allowed to have phones in there for communication purposes. It's an it's an it's a federal rule. So uh, I decided to go out and check my phone, which I never do, and I see a phone call from her, and I'm like, she never calls me. She's at work right now. So I answer the phone, and she just screams, "They're shooting in here!" And she hangs up. And I'm like, "Oh my god!" So I call Long Beach to say, "Hey, there's a shooter at Memorial." So I make it down there in about 15 minutes and uh, found her and her, her department. She was up, they were safe, but uh, she said that, you know, she came into work a little bit late that day and uh, the shooter, she brushed up against them. She knew him. They said hi to each other and she went up, about, she went about her business. And when the shooting started, she just said it was just chaotic in here. She goes, oh, I was locked in the uh, stairwell. She didn't hang up on me. The phone wow. just dropped because she was in the stairwell. Right. And uh, she goes, when she finally makes it up to her office, she looks out and she sees somebody shot in the head. Well, she actually saw the suitor commit suicide right below her. So, you know, she's a pretty strong woman, but it really, really got to her. It really got to her. Again, she was a manager at the time. Um, one of the victims literally lived around the block from her house, you know, so it was a uh, really, really tough. And uh, she had a really, really hard time, really hard time. Yeah. And you talk about wellness and um, I mean, she talked to me about it and that was really about it, you know, and, but you could tell she couldn't sleep for a while. Definitely that PTSD was, was kicking in and um, she made it through. She, like I said, she's tough, but uh, you fast forward now to, we've been retired for a year now. And when we're up here, you know, we live in North Idaho now and we'll be sitting down having wine in the backyard and we still share these stories. And I think it's out of necessity. We're kind of venting. It's therapeutic to talk about it, yeah. you know, and uh, it's, stuff, it's stuff that we filed away for years and years and years. And now we're here looking out over a patio and there's nothing here. So let's talk about it, you know? So that's been, that's been a tremendous help. But looking back, I wish I would ask for help throughout my career. Hurts too. And uh, I want people to get to that point. Uh, hey, you know, what you're feeling is natural, but helps there. So let's, do whatever we can to help each other out. Yeah, absolutely. Was it a, can I just ask, was it a workplace violence situation? She knew him. Yes. Yes. So it turns out that uh, uh, people found out they were going to get laid off eventually, but they weren't really putting it out there. Right. Somebody obviously leaked it. And that's, yeah. And uh, she even said, she said, you know, that the shooter was someone that she had interacted with for years and just a nice, nice, nice man. Wow. He just lost it. Just snap. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it, uh, like you said, like talking about it, it's therapeutic and probably, like you said, being kind of in a serene area, just be able to, just to kind of enjoy the enjoy the peace and then kind of rehash some of the stuff. But yeah, having someone to talk to is, is huge. And I kind of want to go back to like, I think that when you talked earlier about um, like the chief saying, hey, if you ever need, you ever need uh, time or need help, let me know, you know, you have someone to talk to. I'm always all curious, like, I wonder if we should do, uh, like, if he, if he is recognized, like, hey, Tony's having, like, this is a lot. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to get someone here for a week and tell him to stay at home for, like, put up, like, basically, he's only going to be there for, ness, ness, like, if he's a liaison kind of thing. Like, he needs to be home, give him some time away from the place for a little bit. Or, you know, like, maybe your wife, after she de- dealt with that shooting, like, her bosses, like, when do they see, like, hey, this person needs some time time away like when do those when do we recognize that in our people you know and how do we and how do we help them out because it's different for you as a commander versus an officer like officer you get paid hourly it's different than hey having them stay home versus maybe a commander you can kind of do some stuff from home or you know right usually i think uh we help them out when it's too late or we you know offer help when it's too late i think we just got to be on top of it more you know um from everyday basis, you know, and a lot of it was, it's my fault because the reason why I say it's my fault, because again, I love being a, a, a coach. I love team environments. And if I demanded my officers to be there, I wanted to be there with them. Right. And so a lot of that, that that's on me, but it's, um, it's the way I was wired. It just caught up to me, but, um, I don't have a good answer for you for that either. But it's like I said, it's, a uh, if my, if my, uh, Officers are going to be there. I'm going to be there with them. Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of that's very similar. It's like the same idea of like, hey, uh, you get food for the troops, and then you eat last, right? You always let them go. For, we always let them go first. Like you, you're going to always eat Absolutely. last. Like, hey, you guys go first, and then I'll eat last. So you make sure there's always Absolutely. enough food. Always taking care of them first, and then yeah, I'll deal with my stuff after everybody else is taken care of. Right. No, but, and and that you just hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I mean, but that's why people and I told you this on the phone uh, before we had this uh, this interview is that people respected you a lot and it still respect you a lot as a leader in our organization. I'm sure even in the other organizations that you dealt with on the task force, I'm sure they saw the leadership qualities in you there too. Um, but I, I think I really got to know you after you came out as a Lieutenant when you're on training um, when I was a Sergeant in the field and really, really, we didn't know each other, but we got to know each other there and like talk about different things. And, and you were same thing. You're personable, um, you're a Lieutenant and you're, you're treating me like an equal, like we're just, we're having a conversation. And I think that's important. And I exuding that throughout your career. I, people have told me to this day, like how much they respect you. So I appreciate everything you've done for the guys that you work with. Well, thank you. That, that means a lot because you know, it's um again, it's a two way street and uh, um, you're a great guy. We have great people working and uh, let's treat each other like adults, you know, let, let's leave, let's trust. I trust you. You know, it's, let's go and get this done, you know? And, uh, my whole, my whole thing was just to treat people the way you want to be treated. And it's a simple concept. And again, uh, if you're a sergeant, I'm going to let you be a sergeant. If you're a lieutenant, go be a lieutenant, you know, make your own decisions. If you need help, I'm here. And, uh, I think trust goes so, so, so far in this profession. Absolutely. Is there uh, what are you doing today now that you're, uh, retired and besides sitting out on the back patio and enjoying the scenery? <laughs> So, uh, um, working out, uh, four or five times a week, uh, going a lot of hikes out here. Um, other than Sandpoint, Idaho, uh, a lot of stuff to do recreationally out here. So, uh, just staying busy. Um, one thing I've never been really good at is, uh, 
handy around the house. So I'm learning that. Uh, I just bought a guitar. I want to learn how to play the guitar. All right. Um, uh, and, you know, I still talk a whole lot with people back home and it's always fun just to bantering back and forth. So uh, the part I miss, you know, what, what I really respect if I can go back is you have a lot of people who are currently sergeants and lieutenants there. And um, I've been retired now for 14 months. They call me once month, once every two weeks to check up on me. And I am so appreciative of that. Just, you know, it's a, I'm not a police officer anymore. You know, in my heart, I always will be, but just like you were saying, you know, where, um, where do we make the changes to address issues? I think just them reaching out to me, Hey, how are you boss? It means so much to me. Yeah. And, uh, I can't tell you, uh, how much I like it. And we'll sit on the phone and talk for an hour two hours. Uh, just, just BS, you know? And, uh, so I think that's another step that like a show like yours is going to carry out to where people start realizing sooner, hey, let's check up on people. And right. I think that is so important. It's funny that you say that because uh, because when I started this, on uh, like the first couple of episodes, I talked about holding space for people, you know, taking time to listen to them and and just uh, having these conversations. So when I someone else said like, uh, oh, I'm going to meet Adam for coffee. And then, a, and then a friend of him said, "Oh, was he? Gonna, are you going to hold space? Like, kind of as a joke, but, <laughs> but regardless, if that's the if that's what comes out of it, like someone's like, hey, that that means that we're going to go hang hang out and talk and talk about life. I mean, that's that's what it's about. So, um, yeah, I think that's great. I mean, and and I'm not and I'm the I'm not even the perfect guy to either. Like, as far as reaching out to people, there are times where I realize, like, you know, I haven't reached out to someone in a while, and I'm sure we all we all drop the ball, and then just every once in a while, like having those thoughts, like. Like who, like, oh, I, I need to reach out to my, my people, you know, the people in my life that I've, that, you know, have brought that, brought that to me. I need to, re, I need to do that for them and just, uh, you know, give them that space. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, the whole concept you have, it, it's, it's amazing. I'm a huge fan and I uh, just, please don't stop doing it. <laughs> I appreciate it. As long as I can, as long as I can get on the computer, I can <laughs> keep doing these podcasts. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, is there anything that um, that you can think about that um, you would want to empower on a new police officer today? That one, that somebody who wants to be a police officer, or someone that's starting now, someone just brand new, uh, or the young guys out there anywhere in the country? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're entering the uh, uh, the most noble profession, you know, on the face of this earth. Uh, I truly believe that. Um, there's a lot of negativity that's going to run in the media and whatnot, but you do your job, you stay safe, and uh, um, not everyone can do this job because it's difficult to do. And the more demands that society is putting on there, I think the pendulum is going to swing back the other way eventually. Um, but you're in a good place. You're around some solid superstar people and uh, um, block out the negativity and do the right thing. If you do the right thing and treat people the way you want to be treated, um, you're safe. You're going to have a long productive career and you're going to look back on it and uh, be very proud of you. Proud Absolutely. of yourself. I appreciate those words. And thanks again for coming on. Um, this is a Let's Grab a Cup podcast. Uh, that was Tony Lopez, retired commander, and now he's enjoying the peace and quiet up in Idaho. I'm going to have to come visit you up there. Absolutely. Come on down, brother. That'd be so fun. All right. Well, uh, if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram at AP underscore Sturgeon or at Let's Grab a Cup. You can find the show on uh, YouTube. We'll get the video up there. And then on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcast, and at SturgeonWellness.com. All right. We'll get this little outro music going. All right. Have a good day, Tony. You too. Take care.